He's so great and I'm so small. Jesus holds me lest I fall. He's the ruler over all. He's so great and I'm so small. He's so strong and I'm so weak. Jesus came his own to seek. All of nature hears him speak. He's so strong and I'm so weak. He's the shepherd, I'm the sheep. Jesus guards me while I sleep. He all his flock he'll watch and keep. He's the shepherd, I'm the sheep. He's my rock and I'm secure. Jesus lives, my hope is sure. He forever shall endure. He's my rock and I'm secure. He forever shall endure. He's my rock and I'm secure. Amen. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. Turn over the book of Galatians tonight. Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, look at verse 15. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. The Bible says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Father, we ask, Lord, you'd bless our hearts. Speak to us tonight. <clears throat> Lord, we desperately need you. As we prepare to take uh, your supper, we ask that you would just uh, reveal to us needs in our life that need confessed, uh, sin that needs addressed, and Father, that, uh, Lord, we would come to you worthily, that, Father, we would take it that way. And, Lord, we know, Father, that you are a good, wonderful, gracious God. And tonight we ask that you would once again speak to our hearts through your blessed book, the Word of God. Fill me with your Holy Ghost. Allow me to be your mouthpiece tonight. Lord, I have nothing to say tonight except you give it to me. And, Father, I pray that you would anoint every listening ear. Father, we need you, and we know that without you we can do nothing. And so we cry out to you tonight, asking you to meet with us in a very special way. We'll thank you as you do just that. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> in the book of Acts, we're given a history of the early church and the transition from the Old to the New Testament, from the law to grace, from God primarily dealing with the Jew to dealing with the Gentile. And this was a transition that took 
well, quite a bit of time, actually. Sometimes we get the impression, based upon reading the New Testament, that it all happened overnight, but it happened over a number of years, actually. And uh, there were some real spiritual battles that were being fought along the way. The Judaizers were a group of Jews that sought to keep the law in force. And basically, they went about in many of the Gentile cities trying to teach the Gentiles, at least those who claimed to be believers, that they had to submit to the law. That although uh, grace through faith was being taught and preached by the Apostle Paul, there was this real need to maintain the law, to keep it if you if you're really saved, right? Well, that's what was taking place in Galatia. These Judaizers were trying to manipulate and ultimately mess up the Galatian believers. They kept trying to insist that they keep the law. If they were saved, if you're really a child of God, then you must follow the law. That the law itself was, if you would, became part of the salvation process. Now, <clears throat> we, we call that, you know, you know, people talk about, you know, us being legalistic as Baptists because we, we, we have standards or we have some, uh, you know, requirements that we place on ourselves and in our own lives even. We draw lines in the sand. They say, well, you're, you're legalists. And the truth is, is that... Um, that's exactly what the Judaizers were. Um, we're going to see that anytime you try to add anything to salvation, that, that's legalistic. And, and that's who, you know, those being legalistic were, those who were trying, like these Judaizers, to impose a standard upon the Gentile that they themselves could not keep. And so... <clears throat> They would say that you have to be circumcised, that you have to submit to the requirements of the law or to Judaism. And the Apostle Paul, he addresses these issues and makes it quite clear that although a believer has an obligation to live righteously, to live holy, the law was not necessary for salvation. Salvation is not keeping a set of rules or regulations. Salvation is a relationship. And it's a relationship with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and we enter into that relationship by accepting by faith the finished work of Christ as payment for our sin. So Paul exposes the motivation of these false teachers earlier on in the chapter. In Galatians chapter 6, if you'd look back at verse 12, we're going to read that he says, As many as desire to, be, to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. And what the Apostle Paul is simply saying here is, he's saying these men are compelling you to be circumcised because they're afraid of what their unsaved peers or colleagues might say if they don't. And they wouldn't dare stand for the cross. I mean, they don't want to do that. I mean, that would represent salvation by grace, and that would be a problem. These men who compel you to keep the law, of course, they themselves do not keep the law. No one can keep the law. That's the purpose of the law, to point out that none of us can live a life that's acceptable in the sight of a holy God. So they glory or they boast in converting you to their way. 
You're kind of like another notch in their gun belt, so to speak. And it's in that particular setting that Paul then shares the text verse of verse 15. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Now again, before we go too far and get going on this this train of thought, when Paul emphasizes grace versus the law, he never excuses excuses our ungodliness or our ungodly living. That's not what he's trying to do. That's not his intention at all. In every generation, God has expected his people to live uniquely different than the world. He, he, He uses the word holy to describe the attitude and the behavior that he expects. In the Old Testament, we read in Deuteronomy 14, 2, when it comes to his people, Israel, that thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, he goes on to say, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. But then we take the New Testament and we run over to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and we read, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, here it is, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the intention of the apostle is not to somehow dismiss holy living, as we'll see in a moment. It is simply to point out that the law itself is not the means by which we come to Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus Christ through faith in Him in a personal relationship with Him. So there are three types of laws that were given to God to Israel, basically. We have one, civil law. That has laws dealing with like societal order. We then have the ceremonial laws. Those laws are dealing with the religious order or the religious practices of the people of Israel. But then we have the moral law. And many times when we think of the moral law, we can't help but think about those Ten Commandments, right? It must be noted that although we're no longer required to perform the civil or the ceremonial laws, we are still obligated to keep the moral law with the exception of keeping the Sabbath. You say, really? Absolutely. We know, without a doubt, that the law had a fault. You say, what do you mean? Well, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place had been sought for the second. And we're talking about the law versus grace now. That law had a fault. One of the faults was that you couldn't get saved by it. You can't come to Christ through the law. You can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. Nobody can keep the law. And that was the point. Think of the book of Romans. We learn that. But in verse, in in this, also in this particular thought is that the moral law wasn't totally and completely dismissed. You say, well, why not? Well, because it's restated in the New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments are restated in the New Testament for believers to practice and to keep. We think, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8. No idols in 1 John 5, 21. Not to use God's name in vain in 1 Timothy 6, 1. We see honor and obey parents in Ephesians 6, 1. 
We see no murder, adultery, stealing, false witness, or coveting. We recognize those in Romans chapter 13. So we see nine of the ten commandments being restated again in the New Testament. Why are they being restated? Because the apostle doesn't want them thrown out, the bath, like the baby thrown out with the bathwater, right? He's saying, listen, although the ceremonial law, although these, these, uh, uh, this, this uh, civil law may not be something that you have to keep as believers, the law itself is no longer something you have to walk in and obey in order to be saved, if you will. Uh, you don't need that for salvation. You don't need that for a relationship with me. You have grace now through faith. He said, I want you to understand that moral law is still sticking around, and I've restated it so you don't ever question whether or not you ought to live holy in the world you live. But sadly, sadly, there continues to be this major trend among so-called Bible believers in America to downplay holy living by emphasizing grace. I mean, God's grace never gives a person, as we say, a license to sin. Instead, it, it, it empowers us and enables us to live that holy life that He demands of us. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, go ahead and turn there, would you? This is, it's a really powerful verse, Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, we haven't gotten to the message yet, I know, but we're getting there. We've got till, I think, we end here at 8 o'clock tonight? Okay, maybe not, all right. <laughs> yeah, I would hate to, yeah, some of you would be ready to walk out right now. All right. <clears throat> now, let's see, if I do that, some of you are going to be trying to read those. <laughs> I know how you are. All right, that's what I'd be doing at least, right? Trying to get, I'd be like, trying to look through those little holes. All right, so anyway, in Romans 6, 1 and 2, notice what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He goes on to say, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Oh yeah, we're saved by grace, no doubt about it. That means of no effort of our own. God extending to us something that we do not deserve. We're to live by grace. The same way we're saved is the same way we're supposed to live. Christ is to have control of our attitude and control of our actions. To be Christ-like is God's goal for the believer. In Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we, we have this this idea, this, uh, this uh, goal to be conformed to the image of his son. Of course, Jesus Christ was what? Holy. Jesus Christ was righteous. He was perfect. That is, the, that is the standard by which God wants to measure you and I. He wants us to look at our life in comparison to Jesus Christ, not amongst one another. That's foolishness. He wants us to measure our Christian life to Christ. How do I measure up to true holiness? Not how do I measure up to my neighbor, or how do I measure up to my pastor even, or how do I measure up to some other uh, class leader? No, he wants you to measure yourself, and he wants me to measure myself in comparison to Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the standard. You say, well, what should a Christian look like? Jesus. 
He said, that's not realistic. Nobody can live like Jesus. Hey, we cannot live like Jesus in this old sinful flesh in which we live, but we can, with God's help, overcome sin. Theoretically speaking, it is possible to walk in the Spirit and be Christ-like. That's all there is to it. The fact is, is that we don't, therefore we can't look like Christ in many cases. You can't look like Christ if you're not living in the Spirit, if you're walking in the flesh. And the truth is, is that we struggle to walk in the Spirit. But that's the goal. That's, that's what we should be striving for. That's what we should be working toward. Not just trying to be good enough, but to be like Jesus Christ. The Judaizers come along and say, listen, you guys, you, you, you put your faith in Christ, but you know what? You have to keep the law, too. You don't keep that law, <laughs> it's not going to go well for you. That's not gospel. That's not true. That's not how it works. However, to simply disregard holiness, disregard righteousness, disregard any element of separation from the world, that's not scriptural either. God, the Bible says in Galatians 6.15 again, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything. Go ahead. Get circumcised. Keep the law. Whatever. Nor uncircumcision. Don't keep the law. I don't care. Keep it. Don't keep it. That really don't matter to me. What matters to me is a new creature. You say, what? Yeah, a new creature. God places his emphasis on the new creature or the new creation opposed to the outward display that the compliance of the law led to. The law said you have to look a certain way, you got to live a certain way, of course, but it, it looks like this, keep this law, do this, do that, do this, do that, and in doing so, you'll be all right, everything will be fine. And, 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 and the Apostle Paul saying, listen, those things are important, but that's not what's paramount. That's not the most important. What really matters is the new creation, the new creature, that new man, the inside. See, salvation is not a change of lifestyle, although it will bring that about. Salvation is a change in identity. Who we are is what the issue is. Not what we are, but who we are. And in John 3, 7, the Bible says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Now Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus by night, and he's hoping to get some answers, and he's going to ask a very, a very, very good question. I mean... He asked this question, and the Lord drops this bomb on him, and he says, what, what, what do you mean that you must be born, born again? What in the world? That seems rather unorthodox. That, that seems even impossible. Born again? That doesn't make any sense to me. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he's literally listening to the master, and he says, literally, this is what you're saying? I've got to, how do I do that? You know, you don't just crawl back up in the womb and be born again. That's not, I mean, that doesn't make sense. And Jesus is like, of course it don't make sense. But you're not getting the point. He wasn't talking about being physically born again, but obviously spiritually born again. And salvation is a spiritual experience that bursts you and I into the spiritual family of God while on this earth and then gives you a physical home one day in heaven. Amen. That spiritual birth literally changes you and me inside. Amen. Literally changes us. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Again, understand this. We put a lot of emphasis on the old things passing away, all things becoming new, because that's the outward expression. But it is an outward expression of an inward change. It's the new creature. It's the new man. It's the very thing that Paul the Apostle said really matters most. Because if you get that one straight, then the rest of it falls into place. Once a person truly accepts Jesus Christ as payment for their sin and receives him into their life as Savior, that person is a new person. Who and what they were is not significant, but who and what they are is now. And that makes a difference. That's what it's all about. John 1.12, but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We are indwelt and infused with deity. 2 Peter 1.4 says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. We have a divine nature now. We had an atomic nature before. That's all we had is atomic nature. Now we have divine nature. Wow, what a difference that makes, or should make. Why? Having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. We have this divine nature, and that divine nature changes everything, he says. From the very moment of salvation, we are as different as night and day from what we were. Look, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. This is some of my favorite passages in the Bible. I love this passage. I preach a message out of this passage. I don't know if you remember it or not. It's really that good. You should remember it. I probably haven't preached it in five years. But you should remember it. Look, You probably will. Wait a second. I'm going to have a raise of hands in a minute. I'm going to ask how many of you remember this message. It is that good. But can I tell you why it's that good? Because I heard another preacher preach a message like it, and I thought, that is a great thought. And then I went ahead, and I built around that thought. Hey, man, when you hear something good, you just run with it, right? You say, you plagiarized that preacher? No, I plagiarized the Bible. Because it's right in the book. Watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. <clears throat> Notice what it says. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that, that's looking pretty rough. Watch this. Here it is. This is the key. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I'm not going to have a raise of hands of how many of you remember that message because I don't want to embarrass the couple of you that won't raise your hands. But nonetheless, think about this now. Here, did you see that list of sinners? You recognize what's going on here. 
And he even says they'll not inherit the kingdom of God, but he goes on to say to the Corinthians, who were a very vile, wretched church in a sense. I mean, they were one of the most wicked cultures and societies in history. We think our culture is corrupt. Let me tell you, the Corinthian culture was even more corrupt. And the fact is, is that believers within the context of the church were struggling to separate themselves from those sinful practices that they had once practiced. And he says to them, I want you to understand that the things you're doing and those things that you're seeing around here and that you're, 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 you understand that you, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God in those things. But then again, such were some of you. That's not who you are today. Now, why in the world are you walking around living as though you did before you came to Christ? Why are you doing the things you used to do when that's not who you are? That's what his point is. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Because you are not who you used to be, then don't live like you used to live. That's what he's saying. And again, although the verse exhorts believers to walk as children of light, the emphasis in the passage is on the transformation again, the new creature. Now, Once we've been saved, we will never, ever be the same. Never. No matter what lifestyle you fall back into, you backslide into, you will never be the same. Now again, people like to talk about, well, we believe in everlasting life. We believe in, some people use the word eternal security. I stopped using eternal security. It's not a biblical phrase. But we say that And then we watch somebody, well, hold on, backslide, and we go, I wonder if they're even saved. Oh, I get get asking the question in one response, or one, 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 one count, but hold on a second. How come we can take steps back? How come we can mess up, but when someone else messes up, then all of a sudden, well, they probably weren't saved. I'm telling you that once you're saved, if you are really born again, if you meant business with Christ, he meant business with you, you will never, ever, ever, ever be the same. That's all there is to it. You can question people's salvation every day, and that's fine, you know, do whatever you want to do, but I'll be honest with you, I I don't think it does a whole lot of good. Now, if somebody's living in sin and you're trying to help them, then I'm going to deal with somebody living in sin as though they're not saved until they have evidence of salvation through works in their life because a changed heart brings a changed life. So I might treat them like they're lost. I'm going to continue to say, you sure you got salvation? You sure know Christ is your Savior? Yes, I do. Well, okay, that's what you're telling me. Great, I'm glad to hear that. That's good. All right, let's see. Now, where's the evidence of that in your life? Well, I don't have any. Oh, so maybe you ought to start thinking about some things. You need to examine yourself whether you be in the faith, right? They need to do the examining. Now, nonetheless, we find that salvation is not complying then with a set of rules and regulations. Salvation is a supernatural work of God that transforms a lost man or woman into a new creature. So God's emphasis is on the heart attitude then. See, the real test of a man or woman's character and integrity is not his or her actions, but his or her attitude. That's the real issue. You know, we get it all mixed up. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
Man, I can just go ahead, I'll live my life in a way where I can just fool everybody. But down deep, I'm a sinful, wicked person. But man, I got them all fooled, right? And I said, nobody thinks that. Well, they may not think that outwardly, but they're living their life that way. They're, not, they're pretending to be something in a sense that they're really not. Their attitude isn't good, but their actions are good. Their outlook is poor, but their actions seem to say things are looking up. Well, they come into church every time the doors are open. Wow, they sing in the choir. Wow, they're a Sunday school teacher. Man, he's a pastor. Or they, she's a pastor's wife. And boy, they're doing all the things that it looks like it ought to make perfect sense. But wait a second. God's not as concerned about their actions as he is about their attitude. You know, when we talk about disciplining children in the home, it's not actions that we are disciplining for more than not. It's usually more than not attitudes. You discipline the attitude and the actions will fall into place. Most parents fail in that area and they're only disciplining the bad actions of a child. Let me tell you something. When a child shows an attitude, that is rebellion and disobedience and that is what needs discipline more than anything else. It needs corrected because that will produce much more work, uh, negative works in the future than just simply telling them, no, don't touch that. Attitude's terrible. You spank your child and they throw a fit and you let them go. You messed up, friend. You need to discipline for attitude. Correct that. Because, see, when it says to train up a child, discipline is part of the training. It is discipline is not the training. It's part of the training. And you have to discipline for attitude. So God is concerned with who you are and not simply what you do. And you know what we do? We get the cart before the horse. See, the first thing God wants from us is a changed heart. That's what God wants, a changed heart. This is the priority. This is the goal. He wants a changed heart. Now, now listen, I, I get it. I'm just saying that's what he's saying, and that's what the Apostle Paul's saying. In, in our passage, that's exactly what he's getting at. When, when the Apostle Paul, he, he simply says, I'm going to read it again. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything or uncircumcision, but a new creature. What he's saying is attitude. Attitude is king. That's what he's saying. Attitude. So this is the first thing. But then there's the changed life that comes. That, 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 of course, is part of it. We know no doubt about that. There's a changed life that takes place. But until there is a changed heart, we'll always be a slave to our actions. Once we're saved, once we're surrendered unto the Lord, that's when things begin to happen. But it all begins first with a changed heart. Then comes the changed life. You know, too often, our problem is we're getting the cart before the horse. It should be that the horse is in front, like this. But too many times we're getting the cart in front of the horse. What we're doing is, if we're not careful, we're emphasizing the need for changed lives before we ever emphasize the need of a changed heart. We think about people in the Bible who experienced a changed heart. One, Zacchaeus. I mean, here's Zacchaeus, chief among the publicans, right? He's extremely rich, but he's rich at the expense of his own people. 
But boy, when he meets the master, things change. A changed life. Why? Because there was a changed heart. He had a different attitude toward not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but a different attitude toward his own actions. It appalled him that he could steal from his own people. It bothered him that he was taking and stealing from them. And he says, I'll even repay them many fold. I'll make restitution for my wicked, sinful actions. I'm not just going to say, I'm sorry. I'm going to do something about it. And today we live in a society where we are quick to say, oh, I did something wrong. And that's where it ends. And we expect everybody just to deal with it. No, there is a point where there is supposed to be some change in our life. There, there ought to be repentance. There has to be this willingness to say, no, I'm going to make restitution even. I'm going to make right the wrongs that I've committed. And that's what we see with Zacchaeus. See, Zacchaeus, no doubt, without a doubt, Zacchaeus had a changed heart. And that changed heart led to none other than I'm going to get these right. A changed life. That's what it led to. So important, isn't it? Hold on. Think about another one. How can we not help but think about the Thessalonian believers? The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then it goes on to say, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Again, you want, if we want evidence of our ministry and its impact, all we need to do is look to you. Because of how your lives have been so changed because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. You had a changed heart, and that led to a changed life. And I'm telling you, we can see that God was working and is working. But it goes beyond just the outward. It begins in the heart. We think of the Apostle Paul himself in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. He meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Hey, listen, what makes the Apostle Paul any different than anybody else? I mean, come on. A lot of people have met Jesus Christ. A bunch of people in our world today supposedly met Jesus Christ. Oh, I met Jesus Christ. I, I was a 10-year-old at vacation Bible school. Oh, I met Jesus Christ. I was 21 years old, and I was having a bad time in my life, and I met Jesus. I was, uh, I was 23 years old, and I was in prison, and, and I heard the gospel, and I trusted Jesus Christ. Well, then what makes Paul so special? Everybody's meeting Jesus. Do you know what the difference is? There's a changed heart. And it affected his life. Do you know why we're so frustrated today in Christianity? As, as those of us especially that knock on doors and reach out to people and folks are saying, oh Lord, forgive me, come into my life, save me. I recognize you alone as my salvation. I know that I'm a sinner at the very root, at the very core of my being and without Jesus Christ, I'm going to die and go to hell without him. He's my only hope, my only, only one, the only one that can save my soul. And they go, amen. And we go, amen. Oh, where are they at Sunday? Where are they at next week? Where are they at next month? Come on, we go back to their house, and sometimes, if we're not careful, we run into a, a meat grinder, and they're like, well, I've given up on that already. What? 
How's that possible? Okay, I guess what we need to do is just stop doing it altogether. Let's just stop going door to door. Let's just stop telling people about the gospel because it obviously doesn't work like it used to. Well, that's not the answer, folks. That's not the answer at all. Matter of fact, we need to do more of it. I believe, okay, I I don't know if they're really saved or not. I don't know. I, I don't really, I don't know. What I do know is this, though. This is usually, whoops. This is usually what we're looking for. Right? We're looking for, oh, no, that's not. This is usually what we're looking for. Here's what we're looking for. Right? Now listen, if that's all that you and I are looking for, if that's the proof, positive proof text of whether or not they've really accepted Christ or they did anything, then we're done. We're toast probably. This ought to be what we're looking for. Now listen, I... I believe that there, the Apostle Paul, man, he went from here to here immediately. Man, he was in the heart like so quick. It, it, was, it was in the heart so quick. I should have wrote heart and life in the, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. So anyway, it was in his heart just like that. But then it translated into his life, right? Can I tell you what? That, that's what God intends for us. What makes the Apostle Paul so special? Did it got here? We hear it with our head. We believe it with our heart. We live it with our hands. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something. Today in the world we live in, most of the time, we're hearing it with our head and we're trying to live it with our hands. It's not really getting to our hearts. You know what? There are believers, even across this auditorium probably, that are struggling with this one right here. You know, and you try to do, but you are having such a battle, you can't even stand it. Can I tell you, it's because this is lacking. The heart. And that's what the Apostle Paul says is the main element. It isn't a matter of doing. I'm telling you, it's a matter of being. Get the heart right and the behavior will follow. It's a matter of who you are versus what you do. We're trying to get people to do. We've got to get people to be. And it has to start with us. See, don't get the cart before the horse. Work on your heart and your lifestyle will fall into place. Just stop trying to always do the right thing and work on being the right thing. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. For if we possess the mind of Christ, we're going to practice the works of Christ. See, don't get the cart before the horse. Don't, Don't start thinking that this is the most important thing. I'm not saying it's not important. We already talked about the fact that we're to live holy lives. We understand holiness. We understand that we should be living a life that is exceptional in the eyes of Jesus Christ. It should be Christ-like living. But can I tell you, until Christ is in our heart and a changed heart has taken place, I'm telling you, 
you can't get the cart before the horse. I've told the story plenty of times. I, I, I didn't have it in the notes, but I remember years ago as a youth director, and there was a, a young girl that uh, I, I was, had the privilege of leading to Christ, and she was, she was into golf and all of those kind of things, and, you know, I, just all kind of stuff. And um, the, the church I was at wasn't a very big church, so it wasn't like people could hide or stay in the corner somewhere or hang out in the youth department and not be seen. This person came to church, praise the Lord. This person started plugging into the youth department, praise the Lord. And I still remember my preacher saying to me, I thought she got saved. And I said, well, she claimed she did. And he said, well, I don't see any difference. And I said, that's because you're not looking deep enough. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. I said, if you only knew her, who she was and where she is, you would see that God has been doing a miraculous work in her life because this is where it started. Do you know what we're looking for too often? That. And you know what? People live up to that because they want to fit in, but then they come crashing down because they've not worked on what's most important, the heart. You go ahead and you just go ahead and comply with the law. You just stick to the basics. You just be in church every time the doors are open. You just take your place out soul winning. You just do all those things and disregard the heart. And I promise you, those things will never bring you satisfaction, fulfillment. They'll never do that for you. You'll grow weary in well-doing. But if you get the heart right, all that other stuff will fall into place. You know why we're struggling with pornography today? Do you know why we struggle with our words, why we struggle with our minds and where they're at? Because our hearts have not been transformed and changed. See, there's no full surrender. There's not real surrender today. Oh, there's salvation, I believe, in many cases, but the surrender has been lost. What do you need today? Maybe you need Christ in your life. I don't know. That's possible. It begins with salvation, no doubt about that. But maybe you need surrender tonight. You need to surrender to Christ. Your heart is still yours. You're holding on to a part of it, a piece of it. You won't let it go. It's your little piece of turf. I've watched movies for years. As a matter of fact, I was up in New York City one time years ago as a teenager, and I ended up on the wrong side of a place, and I started getting chased by these guys, these gang members, because I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Now, they're lucky they didn't catch me. I felt sorry for them, and I ran faster than them. <clears throat> but I was on their turf, right? That was a piece of property that they claimed as their own. And when they saw another teenager on that property, those young 18, 19, 20-year-olds decided, hey, listen, <laughs> we're going to deal with this dude. And I was like freaking out. But you know, we do the same thing in our hearts. 
Nobody's going to take that ground. That's my ground. That's my area. That, that's my retreat. That's where I go. I'm holding on to that. I know my past. I know I ought to let Christ do a total transformation of the heart. I know he, I should let him just clean it up from top to bottom, but I'm holding on to that little area of my life. And unfortunately, that little thing is going to hinder you and hamper you in your Christian walk in life, and it's going to trip you up over and over again, and you will never be free to follow the Lord and to obey Him as you intend to or that He intends you to. It will constantly hinder you. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Now, you don't need to follow the law to be saved. No, you just need to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and come to Him by faith. Just, just invite Him into your life, yes. But what takes place the moment you come to Him is what He wants you to be focusing on the rest of your days. Your heart. That changes. Who you are changes. Yes, what you do matters. But hold on. That without changing who you are, so to speak, I know you're a new creature, but you've got to cultivate that attitude, that outlook. And so do I. And that's why we read his word. That's why we study his word. That's why we spend time in his house. Not so that we can just be there and show everybody we're different, or we're holy, or we're separated, or we're Christians. We do that because we need it, because we know our heart needs something every day in order to change our outlook and our attitude so that we want the things Christ wants for us. You want holiness in your life? You say, I don't know, that comes at a great cost. It's because the heart hasn't caught... You're not going to want what Christ wants if you don't have the mind of Christ. What kind of marriage do you want? What kind of home do you want? What kind of life do you want? What kind of ministry do you want? Well, it all begins with the heart. Stop trying to just live the life. Stop trying to do, but be. Father, we come to you. I don't know, Lord, I, I don't know if I'm able to get these points across, but Lord, in my own life, sometimes I find myself fighting to try to just conform and Lord, although there's a time and a place for all of that, I understand. But Lord, there has to be a heart change, an attitude change, an outlook change. And we do that in your presence. We've got to get closer to you, and we've got to allow you to do that. You change us. We're a new creature in Christ the moment we're saved, so we're never going to be the same. But Lord, we need to have the, the mind of Christ Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ. Lord, help us not to just go from head knowledge to hands trying to do, but help us, Lord, to truly make it a heart-felt understanding that leads to the right kind of actions. Now, Lord, be glorified in our lives. We need you tonight. And Lord, I, I hope I didn't confuse people. I, I, I just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to really focus on our hearts, that we'd be right with you and that we'd be right on the inside. And then, Lord, we can see the evidence of it on the outside. We thank you. We'll praise you for what you'll do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand. Every